If you please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 21. If you're using the Pew Bible, that is found on page 954. Now, this is the 11th sermon that we've had in the book of 1 Corinthians. And all but two of those sermons, the first two that I preached, have been looking at this first rebuke that Paul gives the church. And, and this rebuke deals with divisions in the church. And this rebuke starts in, in the 10th verse of chapter 1, and it continues all the way through to the end of chapter 4. And then chapter 5 starts looking at the, the next rebuke. Well, in today's passage, Paul concludes this first rebuke, which, if you remember, uh, this problem had to do with divisions in the church. And if you remember, the root of the problem of these divisions was the worldly thinking of the Corinthian Christians. The problem stems from the fact that the Corinthians, who were, were born-again believers, they were true Christians, in their actions and their attitudes, they were indistinguishable from unbelieving their unbelieving neighbors. Well, in today's passage, Paul directly confronts the, the really the incredible arrogance and ignorance of these Corinthians. And their ignorance and arrogance, really, which is, is very common even in the modern church, in modern-day Christians. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 21. You're now the word of the Lord. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you for your spirit to be with us, to be with me. Father, I pray that I will speak your truth and only your truth with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that you will open our ears to hear from you. Lord, your word is profitable. Your word will instruct us. Your word will change us. And I pray, Father, that it will change each one of us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, we all know them. Many of us were them. Some of us still are them. And what I'm talking about 
is stage cage Christians. You ever hear that terminology? Stage cage Christians. See, these are Christians that they start to learn a little bit theology. It finally starts to click. The things of God make sense to them. And this little bit of knowledge that they have, it goes to their heads. See, instead of filling them as it should with the incredible awe of God, incredible sense of, of the mercy that he has sent to, he has shown us, the smallness of ourselves, bringing us to our knees, knowing that we are sinful men, this knowledge fills them with pride. They look down on others, the others who haven't been enlightened like they are. And it's called the cage stage because when we are in this stage, <clears throat> we're so arrogant and we're so annoying, so hypercritical of anyone who may have a slightly different understanding on a minor issue that we really need to be kept in a cage until this phase passes. We're like, we're like a, a mad dog needs to be kept up away from people. Now, if you're fortunate enough to n- never have seen someone in this stage, you could just go ask my dear wife, Lynn, and she could tell you just how annoying I was and how arrogant know-it-all I was during my early days as a Christian, when I was in the cage days. And she's laughing at that, but she knows that it's true. And hopefully I'm past that stage now. But the problem with the, the cage stage Christian is, is not that they know too much. It's actually that they know so little, but they think they know a lot. See, the reality is that they don't even know what they don't know. And this ignorance is only exceeded by one thing, their arrogance. And what they know is facts, and they know true facts. And what they know is doctrines, and they know true doctrines, good doctrines, beautiful doctrines. But what they don't have is the maturity. They don't have the wisdom. They don't have the insight to be able to read a specific situation and know how to best apply those facts, how best to apply those doctrines that they have. And they're a lot like Job's companions. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Job know Job's companions. Job's companions say true things. They make true statements, maybe simplistic statements about God's judgment. It is true. God does judge the wicked. God does bless the righteous. But where they err is they arrogantly assume that because Job has experienced all these trials, he must be a sinner. They think that it applies to Job. They misapply correct theology to the situation. And in the process, they actually sin. In the process, they're actually defaming God's man. They're disobeying God. They're doing evil in God's sight. See, they fail to recognize that there's nuance. There's there's mystery in God. See, God doesn't fit neatly in their little theological box that they have, but they think he does. And those in the the cage stage, they, they lack the necessary wisdom. They lack the experience to be able to discern really the relative importance of difficult, different biblical doctrines. To them, the most minor issue is a hill to die on, and all the while missing the command that calls for gentleness, that calls for humility, that calls for kindness, unity among God's people. See, they, they, they very much, to use Jesus' own words, they strain out the gnat, but they swallow the camel. And in their zeal for truth, they often fail to display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And sadly, this is very common among God's people. And this is the attitude that Paul's addressing in this passage today. See, the Corinthians, they were arrogant. 
They look down on others. They even look down on Paul and Apollos and the other apostles. And Paul masterfully uses a combination of irony and exaggeration and, and, and plain old-fashioned sarcasm to, to rebuke them. He even plays good cop, bad cop at the end. And all of this is to get their attention. It's not to mock them. It's not to, to be ridiculed. It's to get their attention in order to rescue these believers from the dangers of this cage stage that they're in, to, strength, to, to straighten out their misconceptions that they have about the, the Christian life. And, and you can hear the sarcasm as you see this. Let's, let's look at the verses 8 and 10. In verse 8, he says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. This is all sarcasm. And, I, and would that you did reign so that we might share in the rule with you. I mean, you could hear it. In verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. And Paul uses this sarcasm, this exaggeration, as well as this contrast with himself and with the other apostles to get their attention, to help them to see that they have a false view of Christianity. See, they've made a fundamental error in their understanding of the Christian life. And this error is something we've talked about before in this study of, of 1 Corinthians. And it stems from the worldliness of this church, from the, the thinking that's indistinguishable between them and the unbelievers. And the theological term for this, and again, we've mentioned this in this study, and those of you who've been in, in our Wednesday night Bible study when we were looking through First uh, and Second Timothy, You'll recognize this, this word that we've talked about. It's called overrealized eschatology. And that's a big fancy word. It'll make you seem smart, especially in the cage stage. I'm sure you'll love this word. But all it means is you basically think the glory is now. You think now is the time of, of glory in the Christian life. And, and you think becoming a Christian basically meant all your problems are gone. It means that if you're a Christian, you're going to be healthy. You're going to be wealthy. You're going to be well thought of. You're going to always be successful. Everyone is going to love you. This is basically the modern-day prosperity gospel. And it's not that modern. It has been around even since the time of the apostles, and probably even before that. And I remember hearing a, a pastor, again, using the same type of sarcasm. He was, he was going through uh, Jesus. He said Jesus was not wealthy. Jesus was not prosperous. Uh, everyone certainly didn't love him when all his, uh, his uh, uh, disciples abandoned him, and he was crucified and, and suffered a horrible death. This guy was not, was not experiencing the prosperity gospel. And he basically mockingly said, your definition of a Christian, and these are people who think Christians are going to always be successful, it should at least include the Son of God. It should include Christ himself in your definition. And that's the problem with this prosperity gospel. But Paul's sarcasm here is an attempt to get their attention. And the Christian life, in reality, is not a life of ease. It's not a life of current glory. And if you think that... You probably haven't been a Christian very long because you'll really run into the reality that it is not constant glory. I mean, there's good times, but for the most part, being a Christian is a difficult life. Living in this fallen world is difficult, as we heard from our, our prayer requests. It's a life of trial. It's a life of tribulation. And what the Corinthians needed was an attitude adjustment. And this is what Paul gives them in verses 9 through 13. Take a look at verse 9. He says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. The apostles, these were, these were the top. These were, these were the ones they should be aspiring to, the, the most mature. He says, we are the last of all, like men sentenced to death. 
just like our Lord was sentenced to death. We have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. Not a good spectacle. Uh, they, they made fun of them. It's kind of like in, in the Colosseums when they would bring in the, the gladiators. They made a spectacle of them. Verse 11, he says, To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. Again, hungering and thirsting doesn't seem to make sense with prosperity. We are poorly dressed. No, they wanted to look the best. We are buffered. We are homeless. We labor working with our own hands. See, they're not kings. They're not being served. They're serving. They're working with their own hands. And this is the normal Christian life. If you become a Christian, you think everything's going to come. We're going to be, be honored. We're going to be kings. You're, you have a wrong expectation. And Paul goes on in verse 12. He shows the reaction. So, so the reality is these trials and tribulations. And then Paul shows how, as Christians, we are to react to these trials and tribulations. And notice that this reaction is completely countercultural. It's completely counter to the ways the world would react. See, they, they react to these normal, and these are expected trials of the Christian life. But they act in a way that is completely abnormal. A way that can only be described as supernatural. Look what Paul says. He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. So when people revile them, when, when people hate them, how do they respond? Do they respond with hatred? No, they respond with love. They respond with blessing. They respond with prayer and pleading that God will forgive their abusers because they know not what they've done. Just like the first martyr, Stephen, praying for them. What about when they face persecution? Do they complain? Do they lash out? Do they hurt? No. Do they, do they look for, for how can I escape? What can I do, either ethical or unethical? or lawful or unlawful to get out of it because it's not fair? No. What do they do? When persecuted, they endure. They endure, trusting that God is in control, that God will protect them, that God can be trusted, and he will provide for them, and he will use this for his glory. He will give them what they need. And they know that these trials and these persecutions, they are for their good and for God's glory. So they never seek to shortcut God's work. They know God's timing is perfect. When slandered, what do they do? They, they, I've got to set this straight. I've got to defend myself. No, they entreat. Entreat means they implore, they beg, they exhort. They urge these people, not the, those people who are slandering. They urge them to repent, to come to a knowledge of a truth, come to a knowledge of Christ, because they know it will be far worse for them if they don't. And this is the plea of the mature Christian. We don't look after our own reputation. We're gladly reviled. We're gladly slandered in order that Christ may be known to the lost, in order that Christ may be glorified. That is how God works. He uses when his people are slandered, when his people are brought down so that the gospel can go forth. That's how the gospel goes forth. Look at the end of, of, of look how Paul ends verse 13. And this is really the fate of every mature Christian. This is the fate of them in the eyes of the unbelieving world. And this is the attitude that the world will have about us. See, the world's not going to think we are kings. Look what it says. It says, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. These are hard words. Are we ready to accept these words? This is how the world viewed Paul. This is how the world viewed the apostles. This is how the world viewed Christ. 
Remember, nearly every one of the early church leaders and the apostles, they were martyred for their faith. They were brutally killed for their faith. This is how the world viewed Christ. He was crucified. And Christ said that the student isn't greater than the teacher. So if this is how Christ was treated, if this is how the apostles were were treated, why should we expect to be treated any differently? And are we ready to hear this? Am I ready to hear this? This is saying that we are to be regarded by the unbelieving world as the scum of the world, as the refuse of all things, as garbage, as trash. That's how we are regarded. And I don't like this. I certainly don't like this. I want to be loved by everyone. I want people to think well of me. I want to at least be respected. But for the Christian, for the, for the faithful, mature Christian, this is not an option. We have to be faithful to God. And if we are loved by God, this means we will be despised by those who hate God, by those who despise God. And the Corinthians, they also didn't want to hear this. We don't want to hear this. We think somehow it's going to be different. We say, of course Paul is is exaggerating. This is not what he means. Times are different now, of course. And the really sad thing, really sad thing, and we've got to be, this is worse than, than any type of persecution you're going to experience, is that so many of us as Christians, we crave the acceptance. We crave the love, the respect of the unbelieving world. I like the way Jack puts it. We want to sit at the cool kids' table. Right, Jack? That's how you say it. We want to sit at the cool kids' table. We want the unbelieving world to love us. Those who hate God to love us. Those who are opposed to God to love us. And the sad thing is these Christians will do whatever it takes to get a seat at the table. And sadly, you know what that means? That means giving up anything that's Christian about you. You have a seat at the table, but you're no different than everyone else at the table. And every church, every pastor, every leader, every Christian is tempted. And sadly, many give into this temptation. Is tempted to compromise the Bible's teaching. Tempted to give up a particular doctrine to be more acceptable to the elites of the world. And let me, just, let me make this concrete for you so you know what I'm talking about here. There are things taught in the Bible, taught in God's inerrant word, that will bring immediate scorn immediate ridicule, immediate hatred. Some of you, if you say these things, will be fired from your job, will be canceled in your industry, whatever that is, will be labeled as ignorant, will be labeled as immoral, will be labeled as a bigot. Areas where far too many Christians have to remain silent, have remained silent or compromised just in order to be accepted in their given field. And I'm just going to list four of these just to this is to give you a little taste of it. And I'm going to list them in, in, in order of, um, of severity. So the first one is going to be the least severe, and that's going to get worse as you go there, the, the reaction that people will have. And the first one, that you will get ridiculed, maybe not hatred, but maybe pity and, and uh, thinking that you're awfully ignorant, is if you believe in six literal days of creation. Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. It seems pretty clear to me. Now, there's some people debate the length of the ages, and, and, and there's room within Christians. And there's a, a faithful Christian, Hugh Ross, who's a friend of Travis, um, and he believes that there's an old earth. I don't. I believe 24-hour days, but he believes that these are long days, 
And he actually even uh, holds some of the assumptions that the secularists would have. Again, I don't agree with these, but even you, Ross, is despised. He can't go far enough because he believes in a literal Adam. He believes in a literal fall. And, and it doesn't matter. The, the secularists, you have to go all in. You can't even hold little pieces of it. So in, in the final analysis, you, Ross, and, and me are seen both as backward and, and ignorant people. See, if you don't completely surrender the, to the pagans, you will face complete rejection. So that's the first one. And again, that's the most mild, really. Most of the time, we're going to be pitied for that. We're starting to get a little more serious with this next one. The next one is the universal sinfulness of man. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some have sinned. Not most have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Basically means you can't do it yourself. No matter what you try to do, you cannot save yourself. That's what it's saying. And this idea is an anathema to the unbelieving world. See, the unbelieving world thinks we're born good. Everyone is naturally good, which is the most ridiculous thing. They they call us ignorant. Anyone who's seen a baby knows that a baby is not born naturally good. They're selfish little things. Right, Debbie? Vipers and diapers, that's what they are. They are evil things. They're cute, and, and God makes them cute, so that's why we don't kill them. But anyone who's seen a baby knows that they are not innocent. And we just get worse as we get older. So we're not naturally good. So again, these, these people are going to think that we're, we're an idiot. The next one is, is really, they're going to think we're immoral now. Now they're really going to hate us and, and think that we don't even have any right to speak. And the next one is the exclusivity of salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. John 14, 6, these are Jesus' own words. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, not some, not many, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the only way. Acts 14, 12, or 4, 12 says, and there is salvation in no one else, not in some else, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, other than Jesus, which we must be saved. That means that universal sinfulness, we are lost. And it means there is only one way of salvation. It is through Christ. And this is a hard truth. This means that your Muslim friend, your Hindu friend, your Jewish friend, your Buddhist friend, your secular friend, your atheist friend, no matter how nice, no matter how loving they are. And I know many, I know many of people like this who are non-Christian, who are loving, who are much better people than I am. But from God's perspective, they are lost. Scripture says they are lost. People who are, from a human perspective, much better than me. If they are without Christ, they are lost. And the world hates this. They need the gospel. They need the gospel of Christ because if they leave this world without the gospel, without receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone as he's presenting the gospel, they will spend eternity. And we can't even comprehend how long his eternity is, but they will spend eternity apart from Christ in torment, in indescribable torment. That is the reality of what scripture says. That is why we endure. endure. That is why we proclaim this. And I don't like it. I really don't. I don't like it at all, but this is what the Bible teaches. See, if I was going to invent a religion, I would invent a religion like Mormonism. And I don't know if you know much about Mormonism, but Mormonism believes that there's multiple levels of, of, of heaven. They believe everyone goes to heaven. No one goes to hell. 
No, actually, there are some people. If you're an apostate Mormon. So if you once were a Mormon and you don't become a Mormon anymore, you're the only one who goes to hell. But Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, they're all in the lowest heaven. And it's still pretty good. I mean, it's, it's, you know, they're not bad anymore. They realize the, the error of their ways. And, and, and that's what most of us will go. And there's like three levels. If you're, if you're Hitler or Stalin, you can you know, play checkers and enjoy, enjoy life. And, and then if you're, if you're a good Christian, you'll be in the middle level, which is a little bit better. But if you're a Mormon, you get the high level. You get to be married and, and have spirit babies for all eternity and, and inhabit planets and stuff like that. But no one goes to hell. It seems if I was going to invent a religion, that's the religion that I would invent. I don't want anyone to go to hell. But guess what? I don't get to invent a religion. We have to go with what the Bible says. And the Bible says that Jesus is the only way. And this idea is hated by the world. It is, it is hated. It is hated so much that they will say you are immoral for what you are saying. You don't deserve to speak. Some people say you don't even deserve to live for having those, such hatred and, and such vile. And people can be arrested. In, in, in the UK, there are street preachers who are saying nothing worse than what I'm saying who have been taken to jail. And it may be coming the same way here. We don't know. But this is hated. And just because it's hated does not make it untrue. We are to, call, we are to speak truth, not, to be, not necessarily be loved. But it's seen as utterly evil to say this. And again, because it contradicts the idea that everyone has that there are multiple paths to heaven. Anyway, it's like a mountain. You have different paths up the mountain, except for there is only one. Jesus said, I am the only way up the mountain. So that's going to get you some hatred. But this last one is going to get you even more. If you thought this one was going to raise up people hating you, this last point will, will, will get you in the most hot water and the most hatred out of all. And this is what the Bible teaches about sexuality. And the Bible teaches that any and all sexual activity is restricted to only within the confines of a lifelong covenant marriage between one man and one woman. That is it. There is no other expression, according to Jesus, according to the Bible, for sexuality. Again, that will be hated. Jesus' own words, Matthew 19. Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So adultery, fornication, non-biblical divorce, prostitution, pornography, homosexuality, bestiality, hookup culture, transgenderism, all of them are prohibited by God's word. And people hate God. And if we are faithful to God, they will hate us too. We will be their enemy. And these four biblical truths, these are an anathema to our culture. And these are just an example. I could go on for hours of things, but these are, these are ones just to give you an idea of what we're talking about. And these views, if you are faithful to the Scripture, will cause us to have the same hostility that Paul had, the apostles had, the faithful Christians throughout the ages all faced. We will be reviled. We will be persecuted. We will be slandered. We will be looked at as scum and garbage. That is what the Christian life is. Sound like a prosperity gospel? But even so, how are we to respond? Are we to respond the same? Are we to be angry? Are we, are we to, to go live up in the mountains and get guns and hoard, hoard food? No. We are to respond with love, with respect, with blessing, with trusting 
that the Lord will use this suffering that we face to bring people to himself. When, when, when our work is over, he's going to bring us home. We have a great inheritance waiting for us. We're, 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 like, we're like special forces, commandos behind enemy lines, trying to rescue prisoners that are held captive by the devil to bring them home with us. And the worst thing that can happen to us is the very best thing that can happen to us. We are brought home. So Paul uses the sarcasm that we see in this passage to get the attention of these people. He uses it to rescue them from this cage stage that they're in. Rescue them from this worldly thinking. Worldly thinking that's really out of alignment with the reality of the gospel. Out of alignment with the reality of the hostility that exists between the world and ministers of the gospel. And each of us, as Christians, we are ministers of the gospel. We are enemies to the world. And he doesn't use his sarcasm to make them ashamed. He doesn't use it to hurt them. They're not his enemies. He does this to admonish them. He does this to correct them. He's, he's a loving father. We correct a wayward child. And we see this in verse 15, where he says, though you have count, you, Although you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul sees himself as the Corinthians' spiritual father. And like a father, he's correcting them for their long-term good. And he's modeling for them as an example of a faithful Christian. In verse 16, he exhorts them to follow this example. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And my friends, we all need examples. We all need examples of godliness. We all need spiritual fathers and mothers. And these may even, if we're fortunate enough, they may be our earthly fathers and mothers, but they don't have to be. They can be other godly men and women to model for us the Christian life who model for us faithfulness, who model for us humility, love, perseverance. And it's these models, it's these fathers in the faith that help us to get quickly passed through this cage stage that many of us are in, where we we have some knowledge but not much wisdom, where we're arrogant and and we, we seek more to be served than to humbly serve others. And we need these models to show us what it looks like to die to ourselves and to live for Christ. When I was in seminary, there were several fellow students who, and it's, it's really common for seminary students because we're learning so much and we're getting filled, and oftentimes we're getting filled beyond our wisdom. So there are many students who are in this cage stage Christians. You know, we know doctrines, but we need the wisdom. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for the godly professors, men who modeled humility, men who modeled love for Christ, modeled prayer, modeled devotion. These were all accomplished scholars. They were, they were all faithful pastors. But first and foremost, they saw themselves as sinners saved by grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And this gave them a simple and genuine love for Christ and a love for his people. So Paul, in his desire to rescue these Corinthian Christians from their cage stage, from their error, he doesn't immediately confront them. He doesn't immediately rebuke He doesn't start off with the sarcasm. The sarcasm is really a last resort to get their attention. If you notice, he started off by sending them a representative. He sent them Timothy. And and Timothy is Paul's faithful companion, another one of Paul's spiritual children. And he sends Timothy to gently remind them of the things Paul taught. And we see this in verse 17. 
He says that I may, that I, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And this is a good reminder to us when we need to confront others, when we need to, to correct errors, because we're always going to be in this situation. See, wisdom doesn't immediately look to confront error. It doesn't immediately say, oh, let's roll up my sleeves and I'm ready to do battle. We're, there's going to be a fight on hand. No. It says, this is actually another characteristic of the, of the cage stage. The cage stage is ready. Everything's a fight. Everything's a debate for them. Everything's a battle. But Paul here employs others. Paul recognizes that the softer approach is the best one to start with. It's best to, it's, it's best to come gently. These are his spiritual children. He wants to give them the ability to respond on their own. But that said, Paul is not afraid to be combative. He's not. Paul's not afraid to exercise his spiritual authority, which has been given to him by Christ himself. Spiritual authority that is backed up with spiritual power. We see this in verses 18 through 20. He says, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but power. See, Paul recognizes that some are arrogant and that they'll not be persuaded by the gentle words. They will not listen to the words of Timothy because these people are proud. They think they have all the answers. They think that they're wise. They think that they are kings and rulers, as Paul mockingly says in verse 8. They look down on Paul and others. So these people need the strong hand. They need to get their attention. And Paul's willing to provide that strong hand if he needs to. And as Christians, our, our first impulse must be one of peace. We want, we want to be gentle. We want to be humble. We, 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 want to, we are to be long-suffering. We are to endure patiently during trials and tribulation. We're not to react in anger, self-justification, ang- envy, ambition. Our first inclination is to consider others more important than ourselves, as Paul reminds us in Philippians 2. But we are also to be bold, bold in our proclamation of biblical truth. We are to be unwavering, uncompromising in standing faithful to God's word. He is our king. We are citizens of his kingdom, first and foremost, before anything else. And we must always obey his commands. And we must be willing to suffer any consequences, unafraid of, co- of confronting others when they violate this. And Paul ends this passage in this chapter with a question. A question to the Corinthians. And it's one that I, th- I think we need to consider as well. And the question in verse 21 is, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? And he's not talking about a fishing rod. He's talking about a rod to bang on the head with. Or should I come with you in love and a spirit of gentleness? And we need to to look at this question, not as coming from Paul, but actually coming from God himself. The Holy Spirit inspired this. And this question is one that each one of us should consider. See, God is going to rebuke each one of us. You know, God will correct us. See, each one of us, no matter how sanctified, you know, we read in, in what sanctification is, and it's a process. We're getting more and more sanctified. But each one of us still has a way to go until glory. Each one of us is going to be a sinner. Each one of us, even elders and pastors and deacons, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And it's not until we are in glory. It's not until then that we will be free from this need of correction. So it could be gentle correction, or it could be harsh correction. 
Right? You ever heard, we could do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. And that's what God says to each one of us. We can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. Because God will correct us. The question is, will we be sensitive to his spirit? Will we be listening to that still, small voice? Will our consciences be tender? We'll be listening. We'll be searching scripture, seeking godly counsel, sensitive to the Spirit's conviction, praying, asking for the Lord to open our eyes. If we do these things, things will go well with us. It will be easier for us. We will make these corrections. It will be just, you know, good course corrections. Okay, Lord, I'm going off, and it will be less painful. But sadly, oftentimes we're arrogant. Oftentimes we're prideful. Oftentimes we are hard-hearted. In those cases, things will be difficult. Because we belong to God. He is going to get our attention. He's not going to let us go. So if, you're, if, you, think, if you belong to God and you think you can, you can sin all you want, there's, there's two things. If God lets you get away with it, it means you, aren't, you don't belong to him. And that's even worse. But if you do belong to him, he is going to put pressure on you and he is going to make your life miserable. Again, he, he said he, he can, said we can do this the hard way or the easy way. And he can wait us out. He's got all eternity. He can wait us out. He's not going to let us go on sinning without consequences. So God will turn up the pressure on us. He will bring the rod. He will get our attention. He will do it that way. He'll do it the easy way or the hard way. It's up to us, but he will get our attention. So brothers and sisters, I pray that each one of us, this is where I'm going to close this sermon. I pray that we have a tender, teachable heart. I pray that we are sensitive to the Spirit's leading, that we submit to the Lord. We're unflinching in our obedience to him. Even if we're in this cage stage, we're, in, we're obedient to his love. We love his word. And we do what his word says, regardless of the opposition we face. We fear the Lord more than we fear men. And that's a question we have to ask. Do I fear the Lord more than I fear men? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oftentimes as I preach these things, I know I'm preaching to myself, and I'm wondering, do I fear you more than I fear men? And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, we will look to you, that our single goal will be to be honorable to you, to be obedient to you, to trust you. We are citizens of your kingdom, first and foremost. So Father, I pray that you will give us that heart, give us that perspective. We Pray that you will make us sensitive to your corrections, sensitive to the, to the speaking of your Holy Spirit to us. And Father, give us the will to, to glorify you and put you above all else and protect us from being arrogant, protect us from self-seeking, protect us from wanting to have the glory now and only wanting your glory. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.